Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another bad week for Labour, and a big planned announcement on the NHS was slightly KO'd by an intervention by Alan Milburn. Um, how are Labour going to respond to the dominant themes of the election, perhaps going against them? I'm joined by George Eaton, our political editor, and Stephen Bush, currently of Telegraph. So, George, you're saying that we think the momentum is now switched to being with the Tories. Is that a fair assessment? I think it is. I mean, there's not much momentum there, but we saw this week for the first time for months several polls across different companies showing them slightly ahead, very narrowly ahead by by a point. And that obviously is is worrying for Labour given the potential for the Conservatives to squeeze UKIP harder during the short campaign when they say, you know, do you want David Cameron or Ed Miliband as your as your Prime Minister? And polls show at the moment that some UKIP voters will transfer on that basis. Now it might not be many of them, but if it's enough to for the Tories to gain one or two points, then you start to see how they can cling on as the the single largest party. Um, but as I write in my column this week, the Conservatives haven't really moved ahead um, through any swing toward them, towards them. It's simply been by standing still because Labour's lost support to the SNP, to UKIP, to the Greens, um, and the left has divided um, in a way that, that many thought was impossible when you're, you're obviously led by um, a man who sees himself very much as, as on the left and, and who... Um, is who's passion, most passionate about tackling inequality, climate change, all of the things dear to the left heart. And Stephen, we talk a lot about whether or not the le- you know we talked a lot about this in the concept of UKIP about whether or not Labour were too complacent about about UKIP because they saw them as a force that was eating into the the Tory right flank, not ever thinking that they might come and take some of their kind of working class voters as well. Have Labour been too complacent about the lure of things like the SNP, for example? I think yes, actually, because. This, the SNP surge in particular has been coming down the track for a long time. In 2011, Ed Miliband said, I'll fight back from the beginning in Scotland. And then they lost in a landslide which was so large and it broke the electoral system. It did something the Scottish system is not meant to do, which is produce a majority for one party. And there was no real inquest. There was no kind of, oh, perhaps we should in some way seek to work out what's gone wrong north of the border. They elected a fairly boring leader and then sort of coasted to a much closer victory in the in out not the sorry in the independence referendum than anyone really expected. Uh, so I think there has been a complacency about this idea that 
all of the opposition to David Cameron had nowhere else to go. Um, and when we talk about the the Greens particularly, George, we know that Sadiq Khan is, is kind of tasked with being the, the anti-Green uh, vanguard. How is that going? Uh, not very well, although I don't think you can particularly blame Labour for that. I mean, the Greens have surged uh, partly thanks to the free publicity they've had with uh David Cameron demanding successfully demanding that they be included in the, in the TV debates. And then I think they're flourishing through the general anti-establishment mood, which is quite difficult for, for Labour to counter, uh, particularly because a lot of people do think of them as the, as the establishments. Um, but in terms of their strategy now of the Greens, there are some, particularly on the, the campaign team, who are quite keen to go on the attack and say, look, this is a, a crackpot outfit that believes in negative or zero economic growth that wants to legalise membership of terrorist organisations, that wants to turn military bases into nature reserves. Those are in... actual Green Party policies, yes, they are. by the way. I mean, if we yeah, I'm not parodying, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are others who say, look, that kind of attack politics is precisely what turns off people, particularly the kind of idealistic young voters that the Greens, attack, uh, the Greens attract. Um, far better is for Labour to talk up its policy offer. A, lot, a complaint you hear from a lot of MPs, shadow ministers, is that we have actually policies that they think are very strong on rent, but nobody knows about them. Um, and, and why not sell some of the policies we have in a more attractive way? So rather than saying we'll have uh, an £8 hourly minimum wage, why not say that's an extra £60 a week or an extra £3,000 a year? It sounds better than it does at the moment. And then they hope that the dirty work, if you like, will be done by people in the media. So a lot of people in Labour took great satisfaction from the mauling that Natalie Bennett received on the Sunday politics uh, at the hands of Andrew Neil, and she floundered under, under, under examination of their policies. And obviously, as the Greens continue to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to perform well in the polls, they are going to come under scrutiny, and, 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 they will, um, and I don't think you know, they're prepared for that. That is not a, it's not a bomb-proof manifesto. And Stephen, we, we talked a lot of, during the Scottish independence referendum about the concept of the shy nose, and we talked about the 92 re uh, election and the shy Tories. How many people do you think there are in this election who are kind of shy believers in mainstream politics, who are flirting with one party or another outside of Labour and Tories, but may well come back to them at the election? Uh, I don't... I'm not convinced that the, either party will recover that much vote share in the run-up to May, but... As someone who's not a particularly big fan of either David Cameron or Ed Miliband, that between them they can get to the 65% mark, where they neither of them have a particularly inspiring offer to anyone, really, suggests that actually, if 65% is what these two can get, I don't think that the two-party system is as dead as people think. I don't believe that there isn't 10% out there for a Conservative Party which doesn't appear to hate people who live in cities, Scotland, or weren't born here, or a Labour Party with any kind of direction or ability to convey a sense of hope. Uh, yeah. Well, on that, um, on that hopeful note, we try not to end on a really depressing note. I'll say thank you very much to Stephen and George. Ghostbusters is going to have a female cast, and this is a wonderful thing unless you are an internet sexist, in which case it is a very bad thing and possibly going to ruin your favourite film ever. But, you know, sad for you. Uh, I'm joined by our, our web editor, Caroline Crampton, and John Elledge of City Metric and noted science fiction geek. You are, I think it's probably fair to say, our best Doctor Who obsessive in the office, John. Um, in, a, in a competitive field as well, I should add. So. Exactly, streaking ahead. 
tell me first of all, John, you have changed your mind on this, is that right? Yeah, I mean, in, in reference to Doctor Who rather than Ghostbusters, um, I kind of used to hate the idea of them recasting the Doctor as a woman, and I, I, I really struggled to pin down why that might have been, and I am now slightly ashamed of having ever held that view. Um, and I think what sort of turned me around on this one was like, partly that, okay, to step back a bit, the reason I didn't like the idea was because I thought it would fundamentally change the sort of character dynamic in the way of switching the, the character's uh, racial background, for example, wouldn't. And I thought there is something in it. He's quite a paternalistic character. And for someone to be a paternalist, you kind of need him to be a bloke. Um, and I thought you'd kind of sort of change that dynamic if, if you sort of recast a woman. Mm. And, and then over the years, two things have happened. One is that I thought, well, actually, maybe we should be changing that dynamic. Partly because there's probably interesting storytelling there, but also because, you know, maybe this is something we should be you know, challenging in more areas of life. But the bigger, the real reason I've changed my mind on this is I've kind of looked at all the other people who hold that opinion, and they are generally awful, just terrible, terrible people on the internet, just doing the, 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 wor the worst people in the world. Um, and, and that made me think that it was probably a wrong opinion. So that's beautiful. So in yeah. a way, bigotry has, has, has brought a silver lining, which is that it's changed your mind. I agree with you, though, about that, about the Doctor Who companion relationship, is that it has been so different from Doctor to Doctor, from that first, mm. like the first Doctor and Susan, say, to basically where you felt that David Tennant's Doctor felt young and puppyish alongside a very young companion, to moving on to Matt Smith, who was freakishly young. Like, at the moment when I found out there was a Doctor Who who was younger than me, was a, a sad and alarming moment to then I'm enough on. of a geek to know he's actually not young. I, no, I suddenly I remember that. I think he's about 14 days older than me, isn't he? It's about a year. It's, um, oh, still this is got a particularly it. fascinating still bit got it. in the okay. podcast, I'm realising um, now. Um, but, but, you know, I wrote a column that said, I would really like to see a black James Bond. I'd really like to see a female Sherlock. In fact, actually, I think if you could argue that Bones, the US series, has taken the essential core of what Sherlock is, which is somebody who has a very difficult... Um, personal relationship and made uh, Temperance Brennan, who's the who's the lead one, the, their role is, is she's she's female, and then the psychic C.D. Booth, which is David Boreanaz's character, he's the kind of emotional one that's her her bridge to the world, and it's a way of if you're going to say that we're going to do franchises, essentially you keep it you keep it fresh, which was Doctor Who's great leading revelation, right? That you could just every time the lead actor left, you could just start all over again. I mean, it's kind of the, the it's one of the show's big appeals is the fact it does totally change every three or four years, um, and it's all and it's always sort of push the boundaries a bit and try new ways of sort of looking at it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And there's no reason why you couldn't do that by finding uh, uh, an actress to play the lead role. And it would, it would change the sort of internal dynamics of the show, and you probably would have to sort of rethink some of the, some of the sort of, uh, relationships. But that's probably a 
good thing? Mm, I think so. I'm not sure it would be a good thing under the current writing team, but I think they probably know that. Yeah, I do get the sense that Stephen Moffat has taken on board some of the fact that he's been criticised for some of his female characters being a little one-dimensional and only seen in relation to men, and probably knows that that's, this is not his, his battle. And I, I think that's because his background is actually as a sitcom writer. So I think he just defaults to this kind of um, you know, sexual politics as a way of getting, of getting jokes into the script almost. And that's kind of okay if you're writing coupling, but it's not so good if you're watching a show that's become incredibly popular with sort of, um, you know, teenage girls. Yeah, that's, I think that's the interesting thing about coupling, because I don't think anybody in that show is a particularly well-developed character. They are all stereotypes to, to some extent, the men just as mm. much as, as the women. Um, Jekyll, I think, is a slightly different one. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm, no. Oh well, let me introduce you to Renny. It's um, it's about it's about Jekyll and Hyde, but it's about a guy who who alternates between being Jekyll and Hyde. Obviously, an uh, update of the of the modern story, uh, and it's got that fella from Cold Feet in it. I know the one you mean. I don't know his name. I'm going to say his name is James something, but I'm going to stop at that point. Yeah. Anyway, Nesbit. James Nesbit. There we go. Well done. Good. <laughs> Good um, knowledge. Um, Caroline, tell me a little bit more about um the recasting of, of Ghostbusters, which has been the big news on the internet this week. Yes, yeah, so as you alluded to, it's uh, they've they're rebooting the the Ghostbusters franchise, if that's the word Hollywood uses for it, uh, with four female actors in in the lead roles. Um, not and so the, so that's one thing. That's one thing. As John mentioned, the internet sexists will be all over. But more than that, they're not just um, female actors. They are all comedians with a background in improv they will come through Saturday Night Live and things like that so it's not just a statement about gender it's also a statement about the kind of film it's going to be it's going to this is a, a follow-on from films like Bridesmaids that have been hailed as oh my goodness women can be funny on big screens mm. that's the kind of vibe they're going for that's where they're positioning the film do we know who's going to be there Sigourney Weaver I'm not sure we do actually yeah I think it's just a the hard main role isn't it yeah. if you're like the only guy in a in a girl film well, welcome to our world. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm my, my money's on Chris Pratt because he's in everything at the moment. So I'm pro Chris Pratt. Yeah. I saw a picture where someone had mocked up Chris Pratt as Indiana Jones, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I really like that. I'm I'm on board with that. I saw a film involving him, which is the one with. <laughs> sorry, this has turned into like my nursing home recollections of things I have seen, <laughs> but I can no longer remember what they were. What's the one that he's in with the with the with the badger that's blue? <laughs> Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. Okay, there's that one. I was really su pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed yes, that film. Yes, me too. Excellent use of music the in that film. The trailers were awful, but it was just it was just it was such fun. fun. It just a joy yeah. to it. It had that and kind of. And that's hopefully what the Ghostbusters. I think so. Yeah, I mean that's what the original films had as well. They yeah. had a kind of um, anarchic joy to them, total absurdity, some very odd ghostly sex scenes. That's not the forget. State of Marshmallow Man is um, objectively a really weird thing to cast as the baddie in your film, and you've got to retain that surrealism. I would like to know if we're going to have a, a female State of Marshmallow Man. <laughs> <laughs> and is 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 that taking lady. is is that taking uh, feminism too far? Is, is the big question I'm asking myself. I'm really looking forward to that searing op-ed that you're going to pen on exactly that topic. In, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to Twitter the day after I write that searing op-ed on this topic. <laughs> well, before I start asking you to remind me of more things I may or may not have watched in the last 12 months, I think it's a really good point to leave it. So I'll say thank you very much to Caroline and John. I'm Stephanie Boland and I'm on a slightly sketchy phone line to writer, broadcaster and six music DJ Stuart McConey 
who is speaking to me from Media City UK in Salford. Stuart's piece, Who Let the Tops Out, is the cover item in this week's issue, and he's speaking to me today about pop culture and class. Apologies for the line. So the big question this issue is, has pop become the preserve of rich kids? Um, I'm arguing that to a degree it has. I mean, I don't think it, it, you could argue that it's now you know, a personal fiefdom of the upper classes any more than it was ever a egalitarian you know, paradise of the working classes, but, or whatever. But, it, but certainly there's been a, a, a definite shift in the last decade, a decade and a half, if you look at the, the rock elite, the rock aristocracy, really, that we all grew up with, or certainly I grew up with, your Eric Clapton's and Beatles and Rolling Stones and Elton John's, uh, they're all from, however rich and celebrated and stellar they are now, they all come from fairly humble, to use that loaded phrase, um, working class or lower middle class backgrounds. I mean, in case, you know, you can even tell by the names, I think, that... They were all called Eric and Brian and George and Joe and things like that. And you look now at, say, the Maccabees, who I have a lot of time for as a band. There's nothing against them personally. The Maccabees comprise a Felix, a Hugo, an Orlando, and a Rupert. I mean, it's there, absolutely there in, that, in, in sort of telling details like that. And, and it's been a shift that's happened, I think. The, uh, the last couple of bands I can think of to emerge from what I think of as a, a more working class, to use that word, background, the Arctic Monkeys and the Kaisers, and it's interesting that they're, they're the last kind of band to write about the world around them, I think, in any kind of witty or observational way, which I think is uh, leading on from what I said. I think that is what the problem is. And do you think culture more generally has become fixated on wealth? It, it, everything you see, the TV schedules are full of like capitalism porn, uh, The Apprentice and, and um, Dragon's Den, uh, which is entrepreneurs and wealthy, the people who, I'm, I'm talking to you now from Media City in Salford, where they make Dragon's Den, where their limos pull up every Monday to make the programmes, which of course brings out the, uh, out, brings out the best, rough estate kid in me, who wants to key them every time I see them, but that's, <laughs> but that's because I just do not like seeing, well, you know, good luck to them, but I don't like seeing the fabulously wealthy and that certain ruthless cutthroat element of business being held up as admirable, and anything like collectivity and solidarity and social conscience having gone out the window. So it seems everything from the talent shows to Dragon's Den to me is saying, get rich quick, make a fast book. That's about the best you can do. And then conversely, you get programs like the odious Saints and Scroungers and Benefit Street, you know, where mm. let's mock the vulnerable, let's hold them up to ridicule. You know. And I suppose this is a bit of an unfair question to ask because obviously if we had an easy answer to this, we'd be doing it. But what do you think is the next step in starting to redress these imbalances? Well, I think it is all to do with changing that narrative. I think it is all to do with people, you know, policymakers and governments and politicians like the Labour Party realising that there is another narrative. That the idea that, you know, I think it was really brilliantly uh, seen when Ed Miliband said, you know, I think we're going to do a price freeze, you know, I think we're going to price freeze on the energy companies. You, know, you can't do that. You can't have because, because they are more, you know, the idea that the, you know, the market is all powerful. And I think you just have to introduce an unthinkable new narrative, you know, an unthinkable new narrative that says something's more important than the market. And I think it, it will come out of that and say, if we have to pay a bit for libraries, if we have to pay a bit more for music provision, if we have to pay a bit more for the things that make us a society rather than a random collection of competing individuals, 
then so be it. We'll start to think in those terms again and saying maybe sometimes the markets shouldn't have to be carried out to at all costs and sometimes we should pay for things just because they're good for us as a society. Art is good for us and pop music is good for us because it's there when all the other sordid business of survival is you know, gone. So it's good for yeah. our mental health, it's good for our social health. So it's as important to play for as gas, really, I think. Having said that, pop music has always been an ultra-Catholicist industry, and I, I'm ca- quite pleased about that. I've always been somebody who's, I never want to see state-commissioned pop music, because, God, that would be awful. You know what I mean? You do not want musicians nurtured by the state, except in the sense that give them a few quid so they can, you know, out of practice room, but then let them get on with the business of, 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 you know, doing themselves. I would not want state pop. Who the hell would? But that's not to say that you don't think they should get some at least a meagre bit of supplementary benefit, as it used to be called, you know, to keep them, to keep them writing. It's about this change narrative. Talk like this now, and people look at you and say, are you some kind of communist? <laughs> you know, but it's like, no, it's just a realisation that there's another way of thinking apart from yours. There is another way of thinking apart from yours. And that idea, there's another way of thinking apart from yours, the way that Jarvis saw the world, or Morrissey saw the world, or John Lennon saw the world, is sort of at the heart of pop music too, so it is all part of the been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me Helen Lewis and produced by Ian Steadman and Anna Leskovich. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Understore Orchestra licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.